podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This summer, you need clothes that you can wear anywhere. For that, look to American Giant t-shirts, shorts, jeans, and sweatshirts. American Giant makes everything in the USA, so when you buy, you create jobs and improve local communities all across the country. Shop summertime closet staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com with promo code WA23. The world of Celtic media is a fast-paced environment at the best of times, and with news breaking as quickly as it does, it's worth paying attention to the fairly few journalists out there with a genuine finger on the pulse. One of those journalists is Anthony Joseph of Sky Sports News, and along with a couple of others, he's very quickly become one of the go-to accounts in the Celtic digital space. So on that note, we're delighted that Anthony has kindly taken some time out of his very busy schedule to join us here today on the Celtic Exchange. Anthony, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. How's your week going so far? Is it a, a busy one for you? <laughs> yeah, well, Tino, thanks for that uh, flattering intro and <laughs> thanks again for having me on as well. No problem. Um, but yeah, it's been a very busy time. Um, the weekend was just extremely busy. We had, obviously, Rangers winning the title, the reaction to that, we're chasing images and shots of celebrations and the rule-breaking and the fallout from that as well. Yeah. But it wasn't all just uh, Rangers at the weekend. There was also big things going on with the Manchester derby, Liverpool lost again, mm-hmm. and there was also the Barcelona elections. Yeah. So, And then yesterday we had uh, Derek McInnes leaving mm-hmm. Aberdeen, so... Uh, I've been off today, but it's been a constant day of checking emails and texts and putting calls in on different things with contacts and sources and all that. So, yeah, yeah. it's been busy. I was going to say that, you know, even though it's officially a day off today, it sounds like you work the kind of role where you don't really have a, a proper and full day off. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, especially since we're a, there's not much else to do and you're stuck in the house, we're in lockdown. So it's so hard to switch off. It's... and it's so easy to just check your phone and you see an email or you see a text and you, f- you feel you need to follow it up or yeah. um, put some inquiries in, but uh, things like that. But it's, yeah, it's it's hard to switch off in general, but mm. especially when the news is so close to home and so close to your own contacts and sources. So yeah. obviously we do have our own Scotland team um, at Sky Sports and I'm uh-huh. down in London, but I've obviously got uh, contacts and sources who... Um, to go to for for a steer and in the, in the right direction or a heads up on things. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned that Anthony, you know, news close to home, so it kind of ties us in nicely to to some of the information on yourself. You're from Aberdeen, I believe, and that's where you grew up. And yeah. you'd mentioned there uh, Derek McInnes moving on from Aberdeen. Do you have any kind of close ties there? I don't know if you get friends who are Aberdeen fans or or any general thoughts on that one. Yeah, well, most of my friends from home um, are Aberdeen fans. So, uh, and I worked at the Evening Express for, for five years and growing up in Aberdeen. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, there's no attachment in terms of the football club. I, I'm mm-hmm. a Celtic fan, but um, certainly the news of Derek McInnes, I, w- I was working in Aberdeen for the paper there when McInnes was, was brought in as manager. I had the privilege to work on perhaps this generation of Aberdeen fans' greatest ever season. 
And certainly, like, I'll always remember that day, the League Cup final in 2014 at Celtic Park with 43,000 Aberdeen fans turned up. And the scenes and the emotion there was just incredible. And also just a few days later was the uh, trophy parade down Union Street mm-hmm. in Aberdeen. And there was an estimated 70,000 people there. And it's all people you know, and they're just having the best day of their lives, the best time of their lives, or for for the older generation, the best time of their, of uh, since 1983. Yeah. But uh, it's, it was incredible. And it's so easy to, it was so easy to get caught up in the emotion and caught up, mm-hmm. even though I support a different team, you could truly understand. I mean, I had, there was a point uh, where I had like shivers and goosebumps at Celtic Park when, when they were doing the celebrations, uh-huh. uh, when they were singing uh, the Northern Lights of Aberdeen. I managed to catch yeah. that on my phone camera as well. But uh, right. just You'd mentioned that you were fortunate enough, Anthony, to enjoy some of the celebrations when Aberdeen won the League Cup in 2014. Didn't have to break any benches down Union Street, did you? You weren't jumping on and, uh, <laughs> anything like that? No, no, well, I certainly wasn't. But no, there was, I, don't, I don't believe there was any trouble or anything like <laughs> that. It was... Uh, Quite uh, jovial, just in the city and just being in the northeast at that time, mm-hmm. seeing people you know and people you know of, just yeah. have so happy and that mm-hmm. it was pure joy. McInnes made Aberdeen fall in love with its football club again, yeah. and uh, it's it was it was great to see something like because Aberdeen are a big club. I would say mm-hmm. in terms of fan base, I would say they're even bigger than Hearts and Hibs, and uh, the the Aber- for me, Aberdeen are the third biggest club in Scotland, and they've got the yeah. fan base for it. They just, they just need that team to to relate to. To bring it back to yourself, Anthony, um, in your own kind of working role just now, so obviously you're at Sky Sports News, and am I right in saying that you started there just about when we went into lockdown? Yeah, just before lockdown, almost almost a year um, to the day, actually, mm-hmm. that we're speaking. Um, it was a weird time to start because um, I, I remember what was it, second or third day, I just got given a laptop saying, right, we're all we're all working from home apart from presenters and yeah. uh, producers and uh, the likes. And obviously I wasn't in a position, having just come come in new to the company, I wasn't in a position to start leading the night news, ed- the news editing or the live news editing yeah. uh, at that point when I was still doing inductions and things like that. But I was pretty much onboarded remotely. And I remember my mate saying, oh, it must be tough uh, going to uh, reporting on sports at the moment, or you're, you're just at Sky Sports News, and the, I said, "Well, it's, it is the sports news." So we were busier than ever. As soon as I went in, it was like jumping in straight into it, and w- there was so much going on because we got to remember it's the sports news that we're doing, and no one knew what was happening. The leagues were all being suspended; every sport yeah. was being suspended. Um, no one knew when it, it was coming back. There was no. Um, restart date there was at the, at the time so it was it was chaos in terms of keeping keeping track of everything that's being suspended everything that's going on but it yeah. was uh, it was very busy it was a very busy busy time and coronavirus as a whole as for a journalist it's the biggest story of our lifetimes um yeah. to report on and um it has been a difficult at times but also uh, fascinating as well um, as to report on in yeah, terms of yeah. everything that's going on. I'm sure it would be. And just in terms of, of obviously it's Sky Sports now and it's maybe the 
for, for many, that would be the pinnacle in terms of any sort of sports journalism career. Can you tell us a wee bit about the route that took you there? So, as you'd mentioned, you know, brought up in Aberdeen. And what was the, the route that took you from there to the Sky Sports News desk? Yeah, well, um, a long route, but uh, it's been... I knew I wanted to be a journalist from quite a young age. And actually, I think even before I knew I wanted to be, it was suggested by my primary school teachers because I'll always remember in P3 at St. Joseph's Primary School in Aberdeen, um, we used to, on the Monday, we used to have to write about our weekends and our jotters so the first thing on Monday morning tell, to tell a teacher what we've been been up to um, yeah. just to practice handwriting and things like that but I would always write a match report on the, the Celtic game at the weekend yeah. basically it turned into, into that and uh, yeah I, my teachers went said to my parents and parents evening that I think sports journalism might be a career path for him in the future yeah. and uh, when I was about 12 or 13 I, I knew this is something I want to do. I really want to do it. I mean, I think Sky Sports News uh, launched early 2000s and I saw stuff like that. And that was the kind of thing that interested me, uh, the news side of the sport. Mm-hmm. And even back then, and I, I knew, um, well, I was told to get as much work experience as possible. So in my summer holidays and Easter holidays, I was going to places like the Aberdeen Independent, the STV News and the Evening Express as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The Evening Express even did a story on me wanting, when I was 13, on wanting to become a sports journalist. And they said, school pupil wants to be next Charlie Allen. And to those in the Northeast, Charlie Allen, he was the sports editor of the Evening Express, long-standing sports editor. And then six right. years later, he was he was my boss. So <laughs> it, it turned out all right. But in between that, there was still a, a bit of a spell where in six years at school, I mucked about, so I failed higher English. Right. So I am a journalist who does not have higher English. <laughs> but, I didn't uh, that in your Twitter, by <laughs> Well, so I didn't get straight into uni, so I had to go to Telford College in Edinburgh, did a year in journalism there, and I got straight into second year at RGU back in Aberdeen um, after that. But I was only there for a couple of months because after all the work experience I'd done for the Evening Express, they offered me a a permanent job and offered me a pathway to be fast-tracked to do my law, my Mm -hmm. Scots law, English law. Uh, shorthand, news writing, video journalism, yeah. all that kind of stuff, government. So um, I, I took that and it was hard to tell my parents who are both lecturers that I'm, I'm leaving uni uh, to to pursue this. And yeah, no, it was definitely the right decision that I made. I mean, I, I started on sport and I was doing mainly Peter Head's um, Highland League and the rest of the SPL mm-hmm. because the senior football journalists were covering Aberdeen and so um, it was a great experience great learning curve for me at 19 years old to yeah. interview Neil Lennon in his first spell Ali McCoist and and people like that mm-hmm. and Dennis Law was always a big legend up in Aberdeen yeah. being from there so it was, it was a great learning curve for me. And then I got moved on to news as I was going towards my senior journalism um, exams. And uh, I realised I, I really enjoyed news and things that I was I was, seemed to be doing well in them because it was things that my friends and my family were telling me or 
who then became contacts and things like that. <laughs> there was yeah. Aberdeen's quite a small place, so things things that I was hearing were then making front pages of the paper, mm-hmm. and uh, got won me quite a few awards as well at national level and UK level as well. So yeah. um, I was lucky enough to be it's good it's nice to have that kind of recognition when you do yeah. do the work but more from my career progression it, it helped me um be recognized more from the in the media industry mm. and uh, i moved into online working on news and sport so i was able to work on the big aberdeen games or the big stories when it came to aberdeen doing pieces to camera for the website or yeah. live blogs from uh, their big games uh cup cup games or european games same with scotland games as well so that was that was really good, uh, really good learning curve for me doing that. And then I got a job offer from the Mail Online uh, in 2015 uh, in London. And although the Mail doesn't uh, align with my political views, it was it's the biggest news website in the world, and it was yeah. too hard to turn down. Mm-hmm. And that was a real educational experience for me in terms of how uh, online journalism is done because the mail online is in term, the business model is probably the best for for how they do their stories i mean they do 5000 stories a day which wow. is just incredible and they've got bureaus in new york la london sydney um all over mm-hmm. so it was just 100 miles an hour no matter what time you went in there was a 1am shift till 9am shift at the mail and it was even when you went in at 1am it was just 100 miles an hour yeah. because you're, you're just constantly doing uh, you're constantly needing to update, date, update things, and they constantly want new stories on things. So, if, for example, if there was a breaking news story where you might see BBC or the Mirror or Sky even do maybe two or three stories on it, if you know what I mean, there's maybe a big announcement or a lockdown announcement. Mail Online will have about forty to fifty stories. They'll find a different angle and do a new story on it. So you have yeah. a main, a main story. And then within that main story, you pick out certain bits that could be pullaways and they do separate stories on it. So online journalism is all about volume of yeah. content and uh, Mail Online has, everyone is trying to copy the Mail Online's business model mm-hmm. at the moment, but obviously not their editorial stance on things. <laughs> not, yeah. um, but no, after that, those I did three years at the Mail and then went into Kicker Media, which mm-hmm. um, is a video, it's a new media um organization and we did video features with premier league players uh like often soccer am style like challenges mm-hmm. where uh maybe eating challenges or um they would be testing out the new tag uh watches mm-hmm. uh for their golf drives so we did that with man united players yeah and uh, they would go out to the asian um mobile networks and yeah, there was that was good fun, and that you got to know players uh, quite quite well over the over the days of doing the shoots, mm-hmm. and you also got a lot of good contacts with agents and things yeah. like that as well. So it was, um, I th- I thought that time that I might because it wasn't uh, as full on. I'd used, I was used to the Mail Online, which was so full on, 100 miles an hour, five days a week, whereas this job at Kicker was fairly relaxed mm-hmm. and it was uh it was definitely i almost got my life back and i was quite enjoying that for a while so but when this opportunity came up for sky sports news 
So I was that kicker for two years, and then this opportunity came up at Sky Sports News last year, and uh, it was too good to turn down. So yeah. um, it was all—it's always been my dream to work at Sky Sports, and yeah, it's—I uh, it's, feel it's a privilege to be, to be there, and I, yeah. I don't—I don't take it for granted that I'm quite lucky to be doing something I love doing. Yeah, definitely. And and as you rightfully say, it sounds like it's almost impossible to turn that down. And obviously a very different way of working, a very, I suppose your day-to-day is very reactive, isn't it? You know, breaking sports news and we're in this 24-7 news world nowadays. Even in your, your relatively short time in the industry, Anthony, have you seen a shift in, in just how, I suppose, even just football and sports is reported now in terms of this fast-paced environment that we're in? Yeah, um, definitely, because I remember... Everything, in terms of the fast-paced environment, everything is usually broken on Twitter now. Mm. And but I, I had a bit of a good start, standing point, and foundation at the Evening Express because when I joined there, Twitter wasn't huge, but right. we, we still did three editions a day, which is almost unheard of now. And like, there's so many examples of how that was beneficial. We we were working to a morning deadline, then a late morning slash afternoon deadline, and then a, a mid-afternoon deadline for the evening paper to go out. So we're constantly updating the paper. We yeah. wanted as much of today's news today to go out in the paper. And um, I think it ended up being, even Express, even when I left, was still doing two editions a day. And they, were the, they were the only paper uh, in the UK to report Thatcher's death on the day. Um, which is quite incredible. So, yeah. but now now they're down to to one edition, I think. But that's just due to local paper cuts. But I had that grounding of needing to report and update and be mm. quick with the news and report it today, uh, which has stood me in good stead for digital and now TV as well. Yeah, I'd say it's, it's pretty good training for the the day and age we're in. You know, even you know, you're obviously a, a you know a small outlet in terms of the media we push out for our weekly podcast. And sometimes, whether we record on a Sunday or a Monday, by the Tuesday or a Wednesday, it's dated news. Something else has happened, and it's replaced the mm-hmm. story. And everything we spoke about falls down the the pecking order, and it's the latest. You know, whatever's happening at Celtic or otherwise. So. And I microcosm, I know exactly what you mean there about something being so fast-paced. And sometimes it's not always a good thing. It's hard to handle, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, things change all the time. Uh, So you could get information about something that's happened maybe on your your day off that you think might sit or you might... it's, It's that... This is why it makes it so hard to switch off because... You get you maybe get some information from a contact or a source saying that this is happening or this is bubbling away or there's mm-hmm. a meeting here, a, a football board meeting or whatever, and you think there may be like talks about the manager situation or the manager's future or player signing or um, something like that. You just wonder, can't do you need to do you need to, you get that message and you're maybe out doing your shop or you're out for a walk and you just yeah. think, oh, do you? <laughs> this might not hold so then you you quickly put in your emails and calls yeah. into work and say look this is happening um i'll get a steer on it soon or mm-hmm. and we can maybe report something later but yeah that, that's that's the frustration of because uh, you know it could go out on twitter from somewhere else and um another publication gets it and that that can be frustrating but it's it's obvious we know that our sources aren't only talking to us all the mm-hmm. time. Some some sources you have who are very close to you will will only speak to you, to you. But uh, it, you know that 
someone somewhere is always talking to someone <laughs> if you know what <laughs> i mean in the media so it's like uh, how long can you sit on this bit of information without putting it out so yeah exactly i was going to ask as well just on that no anthony so as i mentioned at the top of the the piece um yourself and one or two others have very much become go-to sources for a lot of the breaking celtic news in terms of yourself, is there a process you need to follow? Would it always go through the Sky Sports news channels before you would personally tweet out, or what's the the process there? Yeah, I mean that's should be policy. Well, should be policy in most media organisations, certainly mm-hmm. ones I've worked for. Anyway, is that it's channel first and then um, put out on on Twitter, unless mm-hmm. it's something that's out there or it's an announcement, an embargoed announcement that uh, Man United say send us a press release at two o'clock saying they're announcing a signing at three o'clock I mean that's that's fine because that's going out to everyone but yeah. um it's it's more yeah I mean it's just respect isn't it you work for the company so you um you report it and yeah. often you your story will go online with your name on it and or it'll be read out on on the show that coming coming in from Anthony Joseph which has often happened on the transfer shows mm-hmm. um that we've done um Last certainly in the last two transfer windows, but uh, yeah, then then you're free to, to put out on Twitter, and sometimes you can add a bit more detail that wouldn't actually be normally reported yeah. uh, on ins and outs. But yeah, everything needs verified and checked by at least two sources, okay. um, and and then put out put out on the channel, and and then then you can report it on Twitter. Yeah, and I hope you don't mind me asking. I know you were fairly close to the the Ben Davies story, so Ben Davies obviously was close to signing for Celtic, but it never quite came through, and he ended up signing for Liverpool. Can you give us a wee bit of background on that one, Anthony? I yeah. know a lot of the Celtic fans are keen to kind of get some sort of clarity on what happened there. Yeah, so we, I mean, we report we were very close to uh, all sides of that um, story, mm-hmm. um, players' side, Celtic, Preston, and. We were, I mean, if you knew the people telling us it was done, you would understand why we put it out it was, uh-huh. that it was done. But uh, yeah, it it more it looked to be that the player had uh, had agreed had the contract. He'd agreed the uh, the pre contract, but he hadn't signed it that night. Mm-hmm. So this is what we reported that he'd signed it because obviously we were we were told that um, it was signed and. Then it came out. Obviously, he's he's slept on it, and not that he wasn't going to sign it. I think he's mm-hmm. he's just genuinely not signed it and submitted it. And yeah. the next morning, he's woken up, and other clubs in England are after him, and it materialised that Liverpool were were the ones who were strong and ended up, as Neil Lennon put it, gazumping uh, yeah. Celtic. So he he had agreed. We were wrong with our wording that he'd signed it, and. But we, but it wasn't like we we weren't jumping the gun on that. Mm-hmm. We were told we were told that it was done. Yeah. So, um, that was our understanding. And like I say, if if you knew <laughs> who was tell who was telling us this, you you would be confident with it as well. So, yeah. but that I mean, it can happen. I, that was I, I had to own up to it. Like we put we put the the wrong information out that mm-hmm. he'd actually signed it. I mean, I'm sure he even in his mind. He was going to sign it, but the next morning, others uh, others came in and Liverpool. I mean, when Liverpool came in at the time, he must have been thinking, "Wow, this is a chance. I can go and 
this season I was playing for Preston and now I can go and win the Premier League. And, well, I've got a chance of winning the Premier yeah. League and the Champions League. Or I can go to a club I've verbally agreed with but are in a bit of a mess at the moment. Yeah. So, well, yeah. that it, I mean, it, it, that happens. That just shows you how things change so quickly. And mm. uh, like, like I said, we, he had agreed to join Celtic. It just wasn't actually signed and submitted. So it even surprised uh, Preston because Peter Ridsdale said when Liverpool came in, they thought he'd signed for Celtic. So it was, uh, they had to double check and see had it been submitted. And obviously nothing had, had been submitted. He was still able to talk to other clubs if he wanted to. It was just mm-hmm. purely a verbal agreement. Yeah, and I think it became a cause of, of great frustration for a lot of Celtic fans and, you know, something else to, to berate the club for because I think, you know, Chris Julian, as we know, got injured in December and I'm sure Neil Lennon at the time said we'll need to, to look at replacements. Philip Benkovic was mentioned and that never came through and obviously Ben Davis was the hope that either or a pre-contract or sooner he might come through. Ultimately, Celtic got no centre-halves in that window, so another course, uh, sorry, reason for frustration and a very frustrating season for the fans. Yeah, definitely. But uh, in a way, there's been a, g- a good thing with Stephen Welsh coming through. It's good mm-hmm. to see a, a player coming through uh, the youth ranks at Celtic and actually getting to the first team and making a bit, making a stake and a claim for a first team slot, and which he has done now. Mm-hmm. I know it's through injuries and uh, a loan signing not working out, but uh, he's he's certainly stepped up to the mark. And last last month in February, he had. Uh, one of the best stat- statistically, he was one of the best defenders in the league. Right. So, I mean, he's you've got to be looking at maybe even a Scott possible Scotland call up for him as well. He must be on the threshold of a call up at least mm-hmm. with three qualifiers coming in, and also uh, ahead of the Euros. Whether he makes the Euro squads another matter, but definitely Scotland need to be. Uh, bedding in these youngsters quickly because a big criticism I've got of the Scotland national team is you've got so many of these players who are playing at a decent level that don't have that many caps. Mm-hmm. You look at like Callum McGregor, doesn't have that many caps. Christie doesn't have many caps. There's mm-hmm. there's loads of others as well. And, and then you look at other countries who Northern Ireland, Wales, and Nathan Ampadu's got nearly oh, 20 caps. And mm-hmm. he's what, 18, 19, he's 19, 20, isn't mm-hmm. he? So that's a big... There's a big thing there. It's it's good it's good to see Stephen Welsh come in coming into the Celtic squad and especially as a, a an academy player. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, as you'd mentioned, it's come about due to an injury to Julian and Shane Duffy not doing, you know, what he was brought in to do. But that's, you know, Stephen Welsh can only take advantage of the situation as best he can. And so far so good. And yeah, I'm also hopeful that that, you know, he should see out the remainder of the season and whether he gets a nod from Steve Clark or not, you never know, but he's he's put himself in the frame at least uh, and hopefully he goes on to do well. It, obviously, we, we touched on Liverpool, Anthony, in terms of Ben Davies' situation. I'm not completely blaming Ben Davies here, of course, but Liverpool have gone on a particularly poor run. I think it's six home defeats in a row. I, I think five made it a record, they're now six. Um, and my point being that the COVID situation has led to some very strange uh, results in football, whether it be in the Premiership, We've seen some stuff in Spain and Italy where you know, teams that would usually be very strong aren't so much. And it brings us back to Celtic, of course, where Neil Lennon and a number of key figures at Celtic have cited COVID as being one of the big factors in the, the poor form this season. Would you agree with that? Is it fair to put things down to COVID or do you think, think there's a, a bit more to it? I mean, I absolutely think it's fair to put th- 
put certain aspects of it down to COVID and especially fans not being in there because I think there's evidence to suggest that Celtic fans in particular lift the team. When Celtic fans are there and boisterous and noisy, they can make the team go that extra yard and that there's evidence there to prove that. And there's also evidence there to prove that Rangers struggled at times when the pressure was on in the last two seasons. This Rangers squad have struggled when the fans are on their back. So there's, I think it's fair. It's a fair analysis to say that Celtic have coped worse without fans and Rangers have coped better because the, the same kind of pressure isn't there, but you have to adapt. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the pandemic started in this country and had an effect in this country, a serious effect last this time last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost a, a year to the day that football was suspended in Scotland and we didn't know when it was coming back. We certainly didn't know when fans were coming back. So Celtic needed to put in absolute, all their efforts into finding a way to motivate the players when when they're stepping out onto the pitch with, to no fans. Celtic haven't managed to do that. And that's a failure of the players themselves, the coaching team. Were there enough sports psychologists there? I know they brought sport, a sports psychologist in to try and help, but mm-hmm. should they maybe have been in from the start of the season to get them, their minds focused from being fired up in the dressing room when Lennon and Kennedy are giving their um, passionate speeches, speeches, mm-hmm. team talks, yeah. and and then going on to the pitch against Ross County at home and no one, no one's there. <laughs> so it's... It's a real difference, and especially so many players who've been sold on that, sold on what Celtic are about, and what, especially players like Barkas and Ayeti, who mm. have just come in, who are living in hotels, who are not seeing family, and they've been sold on Celtic with 60,000 fans, European games, games against Rangers, and to win trophies and to become a legend that season. And I'm, sh- I'm sure they've watched it. Well, Barkas has experienced it with AK yeah. Athens, Celtic Park mm-hmm. at the Full House. That That's the big sell to Celtic for outsiders. And two of those things were missing in terms of no champion, went out of the Champions League uh, very quickly. And there was no fans, no fans at all this season. Yeah. So it's definitely played, it's definitely had an impact, but Celtic haven't adapted. And there's been, it's been a year in the making and, there's there there should there should have been something there to to help them adapt. But like we talked about Liverpool, Liverpool another club who are the fans are renowned for making things special at Anfield, mm-hmm. and another one of those clubs where things where their fans can almost bring a result about. I mean, look at that four 0 win over Barcelona when yeah. they were when they were uh, down from the first leg. That's mm-hmm. Anfield can create an incredible atmosphere and and just make the players go that extra yard and almost suck the ball into the net as some players have described yeah. which I mean we, we talk about it as fans but players say this I mean uh, opponents say this as well that it, mm. the Celtic Park atmosphere isn't intimidating but it's what it does to the Celtic players it, it gives them that 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 extra yard it makes them want to go and I think the perfect example was maybe that AC Milan game at home mm-hmm. where Celtic were 2-0 down and I think it was about 25 minutes to go 
Um, was El Yanusi scored the goal to make it two one? Mm-hmm. And imagine fans with their Celtic part would have been rocking. Yeah, like absolutely bouncing. I don't know. The evidence of that is the Inter Milan game when they were 2-0 down under Dyla, where yeah. the, as soon as they scored that that goal, it was the Armstrong and Mackay Stephen scored that goal, mm-hmm. the place was rocking and then they went and scored a goal two minutes later. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that kind of thing can happen. That's what what was missing. And instead, because there was no fans, well, not just because there was no fans, but a big part of the no fans being there was they, they ended up losing the game 3-1. Whereas I think if there was supporters really urging them on, the place bouncing, you could have seen a 2-2 or even a 3-2. Yeah, and I think there's no doubt you know, about that. I think I always talk about uh, when Peter Lowell came out and made the apology in the back of the Dubai trip and he was really slated for you know, word, you know, effectively saying that Celtics had suffered more than, than most other clubs during this pandemic. Now, I say, I think I understand what he was trying to say in terms of the close and passionate relationship Celtic have with their fans. We have really suffered in terms of not having that. Whereas across the city, Rangers had a different relationship with their fans. And I think one chap I mentioned who's really uh, benefited from the pandemic, if that's the right way to word it, is James Tavernier. Because he was roundly criticised and under real pressure from the fans, particularly at home at Rangers, and every misplaced pass or, or every you know poor bit of control was really jumped upon. Now, with no fans and no pressure or anything like that, he and a number of his teammates have excelled. Uh, he will possibly go on to be player of the year in the country this season. And it's just had, a, had the opposite impact, whereas Celtic and the big players, the likes of Scott Brown, Callum McGregor, I would say Odson Edward, Lee Griffiths, these guys thrive on you know 60,000 fans every other week. And when you remove that, there's no doubt it's going to have an impact and, and you know, in Celtic's case, a negative impact. However, as you rightfully say as well, Anthony, it's all about adapting and adjusting. And ultimately, Celtic haven't done that, have they? No, and you're spot on. That's exactly it. it as Lennon said, as Lol said, as Celtic have quite often said that this season, it is a big factor and it perhaps does affect Celtic a bit more than it did Rangers. But they didn't adapt. And they, that's the thing. It was, it was known. I think it was... a. We knew that fans were vet, were unlikely to return this season. Yeah. Or at least very few of them to return. It's It's been the case that none... That we're, going, we're going to have a whole season with no fans. Mm-hmm. And Celtic should have been prepared for that or found a way to motivate the players to, to get, I think motivation has been the, one of the biggest factors. And the reason for that is that is no fans, but yes, there's been a lot wrong with Celtic season this season, but Rangers have found Rangers found a way to motivate their players to, mm-hmm. to go to Aberdeen, uh, Dundee United, all the places and, and grind out wins when even their fans aren't, aren't there. But yeah, I think, it definitely had a big a big impact for Celtic. Yeah. yeah, there's no doubt that, you know, the psychological side of it is something that Celtic just haven't adjusted to. Um, as I say, I mentioned that, that Neil Lennon, you know, Peter Lawwell, etc., have all mentioned COVID has been such a huge factor. We've also spoken on some of our podcasts about the, the term, which is becoming a bit cliched now about Celtic, about death by a thousand cuts. So many things have happened this season, whether it be ball and goalies issue at the start, Lee Griffiths coming back unfit, Shane Duffy not being the Shane Duffy that we all uh, thought and hoped he would become uh, and various other things. The Dubai trip obviously being an issue, guys coming back from internationals and being unavailable, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, 
you know, there's a number of reasons out with COVID for Celtic's problems this season. You know, is it fair to say there's been some other things that haven't quite fallen for them, whether it be things that they can influence themselves or otherwise? Yeah, well, Neil Lennon, towards the end of his uh, spell, touched on something like this, didn't he? He said there was mitigating factors mm-hmm. um, that he wouldn't go into, and he never re- revealed the details. Certainly, speaking to people involved and around the club, I've not heard anything about anything big enough for it to be. If you know what I mean, I've not heard mm-hmm. um, what he might be, t- what Lennon might be talking about. Yeah. But um, I've not. I I personally think it has been death by a thousand cuts. They have. They've had the most horrible season. Everything that could have gone wrong has pretty much gone wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, you even had. Uh, for example, Ryan Christie and Tierney, who were in the Scotland squad, both isolating at the same time. Tierney was given clearance to play for Arsenal that weekend. Ryan Christie wasn't allowed to play um, against Rangers. So Julian's injuries, so many things have, have gone wrong. Yeah. And the Dubai trip, I mean, the less said about that, the better. But uh, yeah, that that, that's a, that's a that, was, the, that was the nail in the coffin of the season because yeah. had they won those three games after January, they could have been in a different position. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, I mean, going back to the transfer deadline day on October the 5th, I'll always remember Celtic tweeting the lineup of their signings. Mm-hmm. And you had a Uruguayan international, you had um, Norwegian international Shane Duffy, Irish international, Irish captain, Barkas, Greek international. All these signings were lined up, and everyone thought this is this has been one of. I think. I mean, I think it was banded about that this is one of the best transfer windows the club's yeah. had in a while. Yeah, and I personally thought that was the case as well. And mm-hmm. I remember looking at the team and looking at last season's team and thinking this squad is stronger yeah. this season. And the only weak link, the, well, I wouldn't say a weak link at the time, but the only the weakest part or the only place they didn't strengthen was the goalkeeping situation. Yeah. And Forster for Barkas. But at the time you thought Greek internationally must have something to him. So mm-hmm. you you didn't you didn't realise how much of an impact that would have until the season went on. Yeah. And I think Celtic have changed their goalkeeper. What, about five times? They've gone Barkas, Bain, Hazard, Barkas, back to mm-hmm. Bain. So yeah, five times. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible, <laughs> considering they signed a goalkeeper for five million. Mm-hmm. So it's it's summed up what's been a bit of a an awful season yeah. and by their by their own doing quite a lot as well very much so you know there's things that I've pointed towards and you know if it was about unjust and things out, out with our control but ultimately when it comes to the crunch the decisions that we had to get right in terms of the football and personnel and how we approach things and the decisions we made or didn't make as the, the season played out most of it was within Celtic's gift and I think we just failed to, to deliver when it really counted and like you've mentioned Anthony when that transfer window closed you know, like yourself, I thought this is a great window. Look at what we've got here on paper. And it's only now with the benefit of the season we've just had that we can point back and say Barkan, Sayeti, Duffy, etc., just not good enough. And I think the only one shining light actually is David Turnbull, um, which is great to see you know, a young Scottish guy coming through, but it's not enough, you know, to just have made, you know, one out of six in terms of that transfer window or one out of seven perhaps. So 
Yeah, it's, it's one of a number of things that Celtic have got wrong this season, no doubt. Um, moving forward, obviously Neil Lennon has now departed and, and Peter Lawwell will also leave at the end of June. What do you expect, Anthony, to see from Celtic in the, the coming few months? Obviously, the you know the suggestion is there's going to be some sort of director of football with a head coach alongside him. Um, but do you expect to see that system first and foremost? And do you think Celtic will make you know what we might call a, a statement appointment in either of those positions? Yeah, I mean... A number of questions there. I mean, what I expect to happen and what I think should happen might be very different things, actually. Because what I, I'll start with what I think should happen. Mm-hmm. And I think Celtic should be looking towards modernising the club with a structure of a sporting director and a head coach. Yeah, And I think that head coach should be someone who is known for developing players, um, instilling a certain philosophy of football, a bit of an identity, mm-hmm. and really recruiting, with working with the sporting director to recruit players who fit that mould yeah. and players who can then be developed, but not just developed and sold, but developed... Go- had a tune out of if as in naturally progressed and done well at Celtic and and then you can maybe look at look at Celtic. I also think Celtic need to completely rethink their mindset and their ambitions now. Everything's been focused on ten in a row the last few years. And I as I can much as I can understand that because if it had happened we wouldn't be even worrying about this issue right now. Um had that had it it hasn't, it hasn't happened so they need they need to think of what what's next what's happening after this 10th season mm-hmm. and personally i think they should be looking at a more european focused model because there's so many changes happening now that that looks to be happening with the champions league the europa league's already changing and there's now this europa conference league coming in yeah so european football's changing celtic need to think about how they can still be part of that and how they can compete and how high they can get. And I think the ambition needs to be set that Europe is no longer a bonus. It should be a priority. With that mindset comes huge benefits, in my opinion anyway. I mean, it's worth that risk thinking. I mean, I don't even think it's that much of a risk because if you do well in Europe, Mm -hmm. I think domestically you must be doing, you must do okay as well, if you know what I mean. Um, So... If you have the squad built for that and you have the squad pulling and you're making signings, not just saying, oh, you'll get a chance at champion. We might get in the Champions League or help us get to the Champions League. Help us get to the Champions League and compete. Yeah, that's that's what Celtic's aim should be, not just to get to the group stages. Mm -hmm. I know that might take a bit longer and that's more of a process which is why I think a, a, a bit more of a project manager or project head coach should come in mm-hmm. um, along with a sporting director so and when you're recruiting at that with that mindset you're also asking players to, to come in be part of that success and and they'll if if Celtic are doing well in Europe players will want to stay if they've got 60,000 fans loving them and they're actually doing well in Europe they're on that big stage Mm -hmm. and they know bigger clubs than Southampton no offence are sniffing about instead of Celtic selling directly to Southampton why are they 
they could sell directly to Liverpool, they could sell directly to Spurs. But after after three or four years of success mm-hmm. at Celtic, and Celtic should be looking to be a club on a footballing scale like Benfica and Ajax. I mean, I'd, I would argue Celtic's fan base is probably bigger than both, mm-hmm. but I'm talking on a f- purely a footballing scale. Benfica and Ajax are streets ahead of Celtic, yeah. and their structure is streets ahead of Celtic. Celtic need to look at modernising to that kind of level, and I just hope that when Don McKay comes in, that, that kind of ambition is matched as the ambition that a lot of fans have, the ambition that I see Celtic to try and re- maximise their potential while they are Celtic. Everyone talks about Celtic in the Premier League and the potential they could, they could uh, Celtic would realise their potential if they were in the English Premier League. But that's not that's not happening at the moment. Celtic yeah. need to think of Celtic need to think of a way to maximise their potential as a Scottish club, as a, as a, as part of the Scottish Premiership, and then naturally that reaps so many benefits players in terms of players coming in players leaving because you'll sell for bigger fees to hopefully to the elite, but you'll also have success on the pitch. Mm-hmm. And I just think that that foresight is needed at board level. So that that's where I would like to see Celtic go mm-hmm. where I think they will go. I mean, they're not, what they are looking at is modernizing the club. Yeah. And although they haven't decided it, yet that they're definitely going down the sporting director route it is what's being looked at and they've put feelers out already mm-hmm. to a number of candidates but they're also looking for a, a manager and this poses a bit of a problem because you a sporting director and a manager need to have a good relationship yeah. and need to be a good fit for things to really work and Celtic are doing that in the same season and in the same summer and it's going to be it's going to be a tough one because if you if you get a sporting director in, should should they then have a say on who becomes manager like that? Do they have a relationship with the manager that they're, they're also hoping to bring in? I mean, mm-hmm. Eddie Howe's been banded about, and so is uh, David Webb. That yeah. would be a good fit in terms of David Webb and Eddie Howe mm-hmm. um, because they have that working relationship. They have brought success to Bournemouth and from working together, and they're both they both project type appointments as well, which I think is what Celtic need. And yeah, what one thing that's almost certain at the moment, well, not certain, but one thing they're not looking at as a priority is that person being a Celtic man, which mm. used to be uh, one of the recruiting requirements, not yeah. requirements, but um, what would it be? in a CV or a job application, it would say like um, added benefits would include supporting Celtic or playing for Celtic or whatever. I mean, that's, uh, it seems to be more, they look, they seem to be looking more down the route of, like you say, a name, a statement Mm -hmm. appointment, but also uh, a trendy young coach who is about developing players and uh, someone who could b- then become a name so I mean names have been banded out like Jesse Marsh, Eddie Howe and and the likes mm-hmm. so th- that that is certainly what they're what they're thinking at the moment but we'll we'll see what what actually comes of it because like I say it's 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 two appointments two really important appointments mm-hmm. that they're going to be making if if they go down the sporting director route yeah. that is but and that has to be a perfect fit 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting what you say about, you know, the. It, you're quite right, it used to be that you absolutely had to be, inverted commas, a Celtic man or an ex-player or something like that. I think from memory the first time that someone was an appointed manager who wasn't an ex-player was Liam Brady back in 93. And then there's been several examples since then and some successful, Martin O'Neill, Gordon Strachan, some not so much, John Barnes, etc. Um, but yeah, I think the fans would certainly accept a, you know, a refreshing appointment, something looking a bit further afield, perhaps somebody European. And there's loads of names doing the rounds, as you say. You know, David Webb and Eddie House is certainly one. The other one of that out that's been mentioned is Fergal Harkins, uh, Man City with the under-23 manager, Enzo Maresca, I think is the name. Um, a chap, Matteo Tognozzi at Juventus and various others. And there's so many names doing the rounds and it's hard to say if, if any of these names will, will be the choice moving forward or, or it'll be someone that we've, we've not even considered. I think as a club, Celtic, again, I totally agree with what you've said about Celtic need to look further afield than Scotland because for so long or for so many years of recent, the ambition has been simply to just be better than Rangers. You know, whether that's by a point or however many points, and that's not good enough. And I think if you're successful in Europe, whether it be the Europa League to start with and then stepping up a grade, you know, success domestically will follow just very naturally. And I think Celtic, they now have an opportunity. The 10 in a row is gone and the short-termism and the, the planning that, that centred around that is now a thing of the past. And it's now a chance to breathe and look at the strategy from, you know, a wider angle, a wider lens and say, okay, we can learn from these mistakes and now make a really forward-thinking appointment. And I think there are reasons for optimism and it can actually be quite an exciting time ahead. And the big hope is, as you say, Dominic Mackay comes in and that in itself is a huge change after 17 years of Peter Lawwell. Um, but it'll also be really exciting to see if he also then brings in a very exciting director of football with a very exciting head coach to follow. So definitely some big times ahead for Celtic. Yeah, and I think you... You touched on it there. Domestic dominance is mandatory at Celtic. You have to win the league if you're a Celtic manager, but there should be no reason why that is the be-all and end-all in terms of there should be be added mandatory factors. Start getting to a certain place in Europe. Maybe football football after Christmas should be mandatory Mm -hmm. for Celtic. I don't think it is. The bonus... It's always been seen as a bonus. Qualify for the Champions League. It's been seen as a bonus. And I, I think that mindset has got to change now. And especially now we're past this 10th season as it is. Yeah, and it seemed to be, you know, for a time at least, that just getting to the Champions League was good enough. And that was the main thing. And if you then took, you know, six doings off PSGs and Barca's and, and whoever else, that was okay. And I just I just don't think that can be acceptable any longer. I also think that despite the undoubted success Celtic have had over the last 20 years and under, you know, for the most part of that, Peter Lowell's tenure, we haven't actually won many knockout games in Europe. I think it's a really pitiful record of maybe three or four knockout victories during that time. And that has to change. And I think that's a, a mindset as well. You use that very term, Anthony, of mindset and ambition. And I think that's something that needs to be changed. You know, and this summer might, might as well be a good time as any to address that while the club are making wholesale changes. Yeah, and you've got to remember, Celtic are one of the biggest clubs in the world. And we're, that's fan base-wise. Mm-hmm. But on in terms of on the pitch, not, I mean, we see going to Sparta Prague as a, a tough game. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, like the you look at the other biggest clubs in the world, like Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich. Yeah. Um, they've got huge fan bases as well. 
they, they don't find that. I know there's, there's so many other reasons for that. <laughs> there's financial differences and everything like that. But Celtic need to find a way, like, like I used Benfica and Ajax and Porto as the example of big clubs who are in smaller size leagues mm-hmm. and but still able to do well in Europe and do well domestically. And Celtic have got to be looking at that and, and, and also selling directly to the elite because that's important. Mm-hmm. Because if you're wanting to bridge that gap, Celtic are currently selling players for like 12 million, 15 million. I know it's now, that figure's now gone up to 20 million mm-hmm. in terms of record fees, 25 million for Tierney. Yeah. But you look at Edward, he's been banded about 15 to 20 million now, yeah, but that's, that's more true. because of his contract situation. Mm-hmm. But Celtic need to be looking at selling directly. If they're going to bring players in, develop them, get a tune out of them, make them do great things at Celtic mm-hmm. domestically, but also in Europe, get, as in actually achieving something in Europe. Yeah. Then they'll be they'll be looked at by a, a higher level of club, yeah. and then if once you start that cycle, you get more money. Say, if, imagine Celtic sold someone for fifty million pounds mm-hmm. directly, or, or use Van Dijk as the example. We all knew Virgil Van Dijk was a quality player. I mean, he strolled Champions League games for Celtic. Mm-hmm. He just walked through a, a walking pace was just so good everyone knew he was going to the top had he had celtic match i know celtic were in a different state that time with mm-hmm. rangers not in the league as well they were downsizing a little bit but had he stayed on and celtic did great things in europe he would be going straight to liverpool yeah, there wouldn't have been that bridge gap with with Southampton, and you're talking. Imagine Celtic sold someone for 40, 50 million pounds. I'm not yeah. saying they would Celtic would sell them for 70, 80 because that's mm-hmm. just not going to happen. Yeah. But even just a bit more, double the price, 30 million, 40 million. Mm-hmm. You're talking that's Champions League money coming in, and then if you're also in the Champions League, that's another 30 million coming in, and Celtic can slowly bridge that gap to they've allowed clubs like Napoli, Benfica, Ajax, um, even I'm trying to think, even the likes of Anderlecht and, and all that, and that, who are able to spend big. It's yeah. it's Celtic need to bridge that gap again because domestic dominance has been great and we will never forget nine in a row and quadruple treble, mm-hmm. but, but we need to do something in Europe again. And it's been what oh, quite, quite a while since, since we have in terms of getting to the last 16 in the Champions League. Yeah, I think you're right. I think domestic dominance is all well and good. And I think history books will look fondly back on this time, but ultimately in terms of, you know, keeping up pace in the, in the modern game and in the European game, we're, we're way behind the curve at this moment in time. And I think you're right, Anthony, but, you know, we can't compete so much with the top clubs in the, you know, the Italy's, England, Spain, Germany, France, for example. But surely we can keep up with the, the Hollands and the Portugals and, and clubs around about that level. You'd certainly like to think we'd keep up with teams like Sparta Prague, for example, and yeah. we're, we're so far off the pace it's untrue. But yeah, you know, Virgil van Dijk is a good example. I think he went to Southampton for around about 12 million, thereabouts. Yeah. And then moved up to Liverpool for 70 odd million. And you're right, you know, Liverpool's not going to pay 70 million for a player, but can we develop a player, expose him in Europe, you know, get him some, uh, you know, high, high profile games in Europe, whether it be Champions League or Europa, and then sell him for somewhere in between, you know, the 30s and the 40s and maybe even the 50s. And that must be something Celtic 
target moving forward. And also in terms of recruitment, that's a very genuine vision and pathway to sell to any given player to say, listen, come on in, do well at Celtic for two or three years and look at what you can become. There's a, a real well-trodden path here to take you back to the Premiership and to the, the riches and, and everything else that that offers. But in the meantime, come and do your thing for two or three years at a very big club, you know, where you'll be adored as well if, if you come and do your thing. So I think there's a real genuine sell there. And actually, that can apply to players and to managers. Brendan Rodgers has proven that if you're successful here, you can also go to the top half of the Premiership. So there's no reason why... A lot of people have said, for example, Eddie Howe will never come here. Why would he not come here? Because he's never getting European football at a Bournemouth or clubs at that level. So why not come here, raise your profile, get two or three years Europa, Champions League, and then go and take your pick if successful down south? Yeah, um, I completely agree. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, Eddie Howe would be a great fit for what Celtic need and what I think Celtic need and what mm-hmm. Celtic would be looking for. And I think Celtic would be a great fit for Eddie Howe. Mm-hmm. And like you're talking about, the clubs he's linked with at the moment, like Crystal Palace, bottom end Premier League clubs, top end Championship clubs. Mm-hmm. If he goes to Celtic, has a crack at Europe, does well, develops players, and w- wins trophies, and, and and for getting back into England, doing well in Europe, mm-hmm. he will he will be looked at by a different level of club. He won't be looked at by Crystal Palace. He won't be linked with those kind of jobs. He won't be linked with uh, your Sheffield Uniteds or anything like that. He will be linked with your Leicesters if Rodgers moves on, Your even your Arsenals, your, your West Hams. He will be linked with that kind of... And for him, I'd imagine as an Englishman, you would, you would want to find a pathway back into it, back to the English Premier League. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But... Eddie Howe, I think for him, has got a real choice, life choice and career choice where he's either being, he's going to be always around that top end championship, bottom end Premier League Mm -hmm. cycle, or he could move out of England for three, four years, do really well at Celtic, do really well in Europe Mm -hmm. and show, put his abilities to the highest level in Champions League or Europa League and then find a clear pathway to a, a, a higher level in the English Premier League than he would have ever been at just being around the bottom end. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's a good fit. But I think with Eddie Howe, there's there's things with like his, his family like to want to stay on the South Coast. I mean, mm-hmm. when they when they were at Burnley, they didn't settle well. Yeah. Um, so there might be, I mean, we all, we always forget that footballers and managers are also real people as well. It's like, yes, yeah. that might be a, a great career path, but my family are settled here and I quite like it here. So I want to stay and get a job around here. It's, it's I mean, he'll, he'll get better money at Crystal Palace, I'd imagine. It's just, mm-hmm. uh, that's, yeah. that's just one of those things. But in terms of a career path, yes, I think there, it would be a good fit for Celtic and it would be a good fit for Eddie Howe. If, if the two could match up. It could be, you know, if, if in terms of his personal circumstances, there can be something that works because he, he's a young, energetic, and I believe a very ambitious guy. And you're right, if he doesn't make the move now, does he become, you know, the next Mac- McCarthy, Neil Warnock, all these guys that just swim around that top end of championship, bottom end of premiership, and that becomes your niche and that's all you become. And, the, you know, the bigger clubs just stop looking at you. I think whether it's Eddie Howe, or one of these young, fresh European coaches that, that's been touted, there is definitely a, a solution that works for all parties. We would get a very um, you know, ambitious and forward-thinking manager for 
maybe even two or three seasons and they would get the chance to raise their profile and move on to bigger and better things. And if we have a system in place where it's a director of football or a sporting director who remains fairly consistent, you know, they don't chop and change every other yeah. time, but that the head coach can change every two or three years, then that kind of is that model, isn't it? So Eddie Howe moves on and the next Eddie Howe slots in and we start again. And that's exactly what a director of football, sporting director, would be doing as well. Mm-hmm. As soon as the new manager comes in, they're assisting them with signings. Or everything, but they're, but the sporting director is thinking of su- succession planning. And yeah. they are thinking of succession planning on the football department, not in terms of the, the finances and, mm-hmm. and things the chief executive should be, should be doing. Yeah. They are purely thinking of, right, here's our plan for the next two, three years, but then here's our plan. Once we hit that level, here's our plan for the next four or five years. Yeah. And this is the type of candidate we, if we reach this level, this is the type of candidate we could get. These are the type of players we can get. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of, this is the type of money we should be, we, we should be looking at making as well. Yeah. And that's where the, both marry up with the sporting director mm-hmm. and the, the chief executive should be having these kind of discussions. So yeah. that's, yeah, a sporting director, you would want to stay, want to be there for, a long time mm-hmm. at least maybe eight to ten years yeah. but uh that's sometimes not easy to do but <laughs> especially if, like we're, i was talking about david webb and how would be a great match but then what if how goes to a premier league club um yeah. in in three years time or four years time after celtic with david webb also um be jumping ship mm. it doesn't always work out like that but yeah it's you need you need a good sporting director to to match up with with good managers and that relationship has to be so key in in terms of uh, making a club progress and move forward yeah i think definitely as a model there's there's a lot to be potentially excited about and you can see you know just you know as we're even chanting through you can start to visualize how it might work moving forward and i think as mentioned it could and should be an exciting time for the fans the 10 is done and dusted and that's in the past and, and I actually think you know whether we were successful or not with the 10 in a row it has hindered the club in terms of short-term thinking so now we can be more forward thinking and more progressive and, and as I say hopefully more exciting times on the horizon um, in terms of you know moving back on to playing personnel Anthony um, next year you know there's, there's obviously a lot of chat about the rebuild quote-unquote and what the squad might look like uh, by the start of next season I think it's quite clear that guys like Edward Ayer possibly Christian, one or two others, should move on for, for pretty decent fees. Um, and we've obviously got guys who've underperformed so far, guys like Ayeti and Barkas. But how would you th- see things shaping up next year? Do you think there's going to be a lot of change, a lot of outs and a lot of ins? Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of outs to start with and key players are going to be leaving. I mean, Edward will be away, surely. Cham, whether it's Marseille or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Ayer is going to be... Going and I think Celtic could get a decent a decent fee from him as well. Yeah. Uh, Christie, I think is more likely to leave mm-hmm. this summer. Um, he's he's already I think made it clear um, that he's he not doesn't want to sign a new contract because he's he's looking for a move. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think you'll see. And then you've got the loan signings. You've got uh, Laxalt, Duffy, Elianusi. John Joe Kenny going as well. So we're talking, mm. what, near at least 10 players leaving, poss- possibly. And uh, then you need to to bring in players to, to replace them. The, what I would say is that I think 
what's been a high point this season, there's been very few, is that Turnbull and Sorrow seem to be a decent couple of signings yeah. and seem to be able to put in decent levels of performances. Mm-hmm. And they could well be the team, with if McGregor stays, which I would expect him to, yeah. McGregor, Turnbull and Sorrow is a nucleus of a side that you can build around. And that with Forrest coming back as well, Forrest, I mean, I looked at Forrest's stats on Sunday just because he was he was back in the squad. And I just, I, I was just thinking, I, I mean, you almost, there was times where you forgot and Forrest is out. Mm-hmm. And he is such an important player for Celtic. I mean, just in his last two seasons, he has scored or assisted 38 goals in each of those seasons. Yeah. That I mean, Celtic have only scored just over sixty goals in the Premiership this season. Mm. I mean, if, if he's getting near four, if he's being involved in near forty goals each season, that just shows you how much of a loss, yeah, absolutely. James Forrest is, and he gets he gets a hard time from a lot of fans as well. And <laughs> I, I think that's more of a nature of being a winger, where mm. you try stuff, and because you're out on the wing, you either get tackled or you the ball goes out. Yeah. So I mean, it's. So they can be frustrating players at times, but he Mm. delivers time and time again, James Forrest. So he's a crucial player to have back. And let's hope he gets properly fit, does well in the Euros, and and Celtic get get the player they had Mm. uh, previously back uh, for next season because he will be a key player as well in terms of... um, getting the title back mm-hmm. and I need to admit I have criticised James Forrest at times and I, I get a hard time from the, the guys at the Celtic Exchange for that um, but as you say you know 38 goals or assists per season that is you know huge numbers and very very hard to replace and I think you know for different reasons we have kind of forgotten about him this season because there's been so many other headlines but actually when you take a crucial player like that and what he brings to the team out uh, of the squad, then there's no doubt there's going to have a, a negative impact. But yeah, I think, you know, looking forward, you're, you're quite right, Anthony, in terms of there are a, a nucleus of guys and talented guys at like that that we can build around. So Sorrow and Turnbull in the centre that you've mentioned, hopefully Callum McGregor can reclaim his previous form and, and also be a part of that. James Forrest we've spoken of. Chris Julian, obviously he's a bit away in terms of fitness-wise, but can be a very good player on his day. And Stephen Welsh could potentially be a partner for him moving forward. Um, so there is a, a grouping there, and obviously there's a lot more needed to you know, to be added to that and, and to, to be developed, but there are a core of players there that could form the nucleus of the team for the next few years, but it's so important to maybe top and tail that. I think a goalkeeper is so, so important, um, and whether Barkas gets another chance, I'm not sure. I mean, do you think just on that, Barkas and Ayeti, will they be given a chance to prove themselves, or do you think they might move on as well? Uh, well, I... I'd be very surprised if Celtic has made an investment of ten million pounds on two players and gave them only gave them a season to mm-hmm. settle, especially when they've been living in hotels yeah. and with the COVID situation. And and Celtic seem to be blaming a lot of what's happened this season on on COVID. So, I think I would expect both to be at Celtic, especially Ayeti. I think um, I think he could well be the number one striker next season. And I think we've seen glimpses of that at the start when he was coming on as a sub and um, starting a few games as well um, early on, like around September, I think it was, August, September. And he was he was scoring goals. I think he scored mm-hmm. like six goals in two months um, just coming on as a sub and playing bit, a bit part uh, uh, in, in games. But 
Yeah, Barkas is is a strange one because the, they've scouted him for quite a while, uh, Celtic, and he has been lined up as the backup option if Forster didn't come. They've they fully expected Forster to come. I mean, mm-hmm. Southampton accepted um, Celtic's offer for him, yeah. and in this last summer, but. And Lennon said it himself. He thought he, he Forster was coming back, but Forster, after chatting to the manager, was convinced that he could fight for his place. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's fair enough for him. Um, but Celtic then need to look at right that that plan's failed. Who 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 can we fall back on? Who who's our next option? Mm-hmm. And Barkas seemed to be the one who stood out, and they paid a lot of money for him, and he has it a decent record in Greece and um, also an international as well. You, you, there's something there. <laughs> if you, we, we haven't seen something. it yet, but there is something there. But like, like I said earlier, Celtic have changed their keeper five times this season. So there's yeah. serious issues there to go with Barkas on two different occasions and then drop him. Mm-hmm. It's, um, but we also don't know what's going on in family life. I mean, if if he is away from his family, then that can be hard. You're not, it's not like they can just come every every so often. Like mm-hmm. often often footballers live away from their families, but in normal circumstances, their families come uh, come over every other week, or they go and visit them. Um, I mean, Sergio Aguero used to fly to Argentina quite often. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he still does that, but in in the middle of in the middle of the week to to go to to go and see his family and then come back, mm-hmm. uh, which seems mental, but that's, they, they can afford to do it. And they, yeah. that's, that's how they want to live their lives. But mm-hmm. at the moment, I mean, you've seen with El Hamid as well, mm-hmm. he, he was quite happy as having his, uh, having his family in Israel and them coming over and him going over every so often, mm-hmm. but with COVID hitting, he wasn't able to see his family, so yeah. it's a huge it's a huge part. And I I don't know that is definitely the case for Barkas, but mm-hmm. I, you you'd have to think of a, a player coming from Greece uh, would have to s- settle and would want to be near people he, he knows and likes and uh, loves and it, it just needs to feel that warmth and and like I said, the warmth even of the Celtic support. These players that have come in, Barkas and Ayeti would have been adored on the, at Celtic Park in that first home game that yeah. they were playing. Mm-hmm. And they're just not getting that. They're not feeling the full Celtic experience. And Celtic is a great place for a for a footballer to be. Mm-hmm. There's so, so much... I mean, you talk about so many players have left Celtic and said they just didn't get that same feeling at another club that they got at Celtic. I mean, you've heard Joe Ledley talk about it, Kelvin Wilson, Venegura Hesselink, lots of players have talked about being at Celtic and then moving away from Celtic and just mm. feeling that emptiness yeah. that you that you you no longer get. And you, you it's only then that they fully appreciate what they have at Celtic and what you can do. And and but that that reflects it's uh, it's a mutual relationship, and you have to be performing on the pitch as well. And yeah, and that, but it's uh, that that I just feel that yeah, these players would maybe have a different outlook on things mm-hmm. had fans been there, and if they had the full experience, and hopefully they do get that, and hopefully I'd I'd love nothing more than Barkas and Ayeti to uh, be there next season, mm-hmm. fa- fans starting to come in next season and maybe towards the middle of the season it's a full house again 
and they can really get that Celtic Park experience. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that, very unfortunately, uh, the likes of Ayeti, Barkas, and I'd put Shane Duffy very much in that bracket as well, they Um, haven't fulfilled the Celtic dream that I think at at different points they've all been sold. And it's just, you know, it's life, it's what's happened, and and we've talked about adjusting and and different things, and there's nothing any of us could have done to control it. But it is is sad and pretty unfortunate that these guys haven't had that experience. And who knows, you know, there might be a a brighter future ahead for Ayeti and Barkas. Just the last question for you, Anthony, in terms of the playing personnel. um, Straight up, do the following two players have a future at Celtic? Number one is Lee Griffiths, and number two is Patrick Clamalla. Uh, Start with Griffiths. Uh, It's a difficult one, that, because you would love, I think all Celtic fans would love nothing more than Griffiths to be back at his best, banging in the goals. Mm -hmm. Even even what he was doing towards the end of last season, uh, his upturn in form and him being brought back into the side saw Celtic kick on and go from being behind in the table to winning the league by 13 points. Mm-hmm. There was a, Griffiths played a huge part in that and it's just really frustrating. The, the off-field problems aren't the frustrating part. Obviously, that's if, if he, there has been, well, there has been, mental, he's had mental health problems and things like that and that needs to be also acknowledged and addressed and we extra care needs to be taken when uh, you're bringing a player back. Celtic gave him a lot of time off. Yeah. He seemed to feel he was ready to be back. But if you're coming back, you need to be professional. You need to keep your fitness up. You need to also be raring to go for your manager. Your manager needs to see that that, that you, this is me back. This is this is what this is what I'm I'm here to score goals again. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, there's. I, I thought when he came back into the squad um, around the mid mid time this season, it was this was him going to be back in, and Edward and Griffiths will play up front together. He'll get a few goals, and and he'll be Scotland's number one striker at the Euros because he is Scotland's best striker. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still a couple of years, there's still a good few years left in Lee Griffiths yeah. to uh, at Celtic if if he wants it to be, and I think it's all about can he get. The right mindset to to go to go out and have the same motivation to go and play and score goals again, mm-hmm. and is he getting enough help to do so as well? And that, yeah. that's that's a long winded answer. I, is he going to be at Celtic? I hope he is, and yeah. I hope I I think he will be, and I and I hope he does. And Klamala is another one who we haven't really seen too much of him. He hasn't played that many games since he's signing and what was it, over three million he signed for. Yeah. And Celtic shouldn't be buying players for three million pounds and not playing them and then just selling them for like one point two million or or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean we saw similar with uh Kuasi, didn't we? Yeah. Who was really billed as the next one Yama mm. and just didn't get enough games. I mean, I, rem- I remember, I remember one game he played where he really stood out, and I think, I think it was was it Zenit at home, where they put him, where he, I think he played. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'll have to double check that, but I think yeah. it might have been Zenit at home. I just remember one European game where he he really stood out for me, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, but not to say that he he was good enough to to be regularly playing for Celtic in that midfield where Scott Brown was obviously a first pick every single time. Mm-hmm. But I, I do worry about Celtic signing players and then just not playing them. Yeah. And then 
when players get a few injuries, they're just thrown in maybe like three quarters into the season, three mm-hmm. quarters into a game as well. Yeah. And then suddenly the support, because you're thrown into that scenario, it's hard to fully adapt. You're not completely match fit either. Mm-hmm. And it's it can be quite difficult. And I'd like to see if if we're paying three million pounds for, for a player, they need to get a chance. Yeah, I, th- I think it's the the least that they could expect. I mean, you just cannot prove yourself at Lennox Town. You need to be given games, and whether that's you know League Cup games or, or whatever, you need to be given minutes on the pitch to prove that you either have it or don't. And if you don't, then we all shake hands and you move on. But if there's something there, and you would like to think there's something there, having paid three and a half million for Klamala, then yeah, let, let's give him a chance. I wonder if, obviously, the remaining league games, aside from the Rangers two, are effectively meaningless. You know, should he be given some 90 minutes during those to prove what he's got? Similarly with Ayeti and, and other guys in the squad as well. So it could be an opportunity for Klamala and others to stake a claim more for next year than what's currently going on. But let's hope they're given a chance to do so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's all that's all you want. If you, I mean, you're, you, you're scouting these players. You must think there's something there. And so give them a chance. You never know, like Sorrow. Was has been at Celtic for a wee while now, yeah. and he's only he only broke into the team in October, mm-hmm. so it's uh, I think if if you're putting the faith to p- to pay money for these players, you need to give them a chance. Yeah, I think so. So last key question, Anthony, on Celtic. Obviously, as I'd mentioned, ten has gone. You know, new new times on the horizon and a new approach to things. But can Celtic? bounce back next season and mount a credible challenge to the title. Some think it's a huge undertaking in terms of the rebuild, some not so much. Do you think with the right appointments and the right recruitment on the, the playing side of things, they can reclaim the title? Yeah, and that should be priority. That should be the the aim. And there's, I mean, Celtic should always have a team that is up there and challenging for the title in, uh, in, in the past, but but now it's a case of winning that title back. And you look at the rebuild, there is going to be a huge a huge rebuild. But like we said earlier, there's a nucleus of a team that can be built around and it should just be a case of adding adding players here and there and replacing ones um who've 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 left. And that should be the planning should be already in place for that. But again, it depends on who, what structure they want. There's so much going on at the club at the moment. They they haven't decided on uh, the structure they're going to take forward for next season. They haven't got. If they are going for sporting director, they haven't got a sporting director, and they haven't got a manager. And so there's, and then they don't have the players <laughs> lined up to to replace the ones that uh, are going to be going out so it's it is it's a huge task especially in covid times and a euros uh summer it's it's a huge ask for for whoever comes in as manager but they they absolutely should be looking to to win that title back and i i think they can i don't think this rangers team yes that they are on course to be invincible, hopefully not. But um, it's they are on course to. But they've had a very good season. They've only conceded nine goals. They haven't lost a game in the league. They, but they're not on. They're not untouchable. I mean, Celtic dominated that game at Ibrox. Completely blew them away mm-hmm. until the, until the red card. And if let's let's see how if Celtic can lay a marker on them for next season and the next two games coming up at least, and there could be the Scottish Cup game as well, if 
if they get they both uh, get through the rounds. Yeah. So th- that's the kind of marker Celtic should be looking to lay on them, and just just to say, look, we're we're still a good team, and we'll we'll be there for next season as well. And yeah. Rangers Rangers did that. Um, with Celtic, Gerard did that with Rogers and with Lennon mm-hmm. in both games at Ibrox that that season, just to say, look, we've we've improved. We can we can beat you on our day, and 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 it was shown they can. Now they've shown evidence that they can go on and win titles. So yeah. it's it's going to be it's a, it's a big it's a big big task this mm-hmm. summer this rebuild. But there's there's absolutely no reason why Celtic shouldn't be winning the league next season. Yeah, I think there's, you know, a huge job ahead, no no doubt, but the it's been shown that this Rangers team aren't invincible and St Myrna are testament mm-hmm. to that. And I think Celtic showed in the New Year game that we can go toe-to-toe with them. So it will be very interesting to see how those remaining two league games go. Kind of brings me on as well. I obviously forgot to mention that with the Scottish Cup coming back, that in itself represents a chance for Celtic to restore some pride and, and reclaim the trophy for a fifth time, uh, you know, having won it as part of the quadruple treble, of course. How important do you feel it might be for John Kennedy, um, Anthony? So whether John Kennedy's part of things next year or not remains to be seen, but for him personally, how big could that be for him in terms of building his own coaching CV moving forward? I mean, this, the Scottish Cup resuming, which I was surprised about, mm-hmm. to be honest, um, is a godsend for John Kennedy especially and whether that means this is a real chance for him now to lay down a marker of what of for his managerial career going forward whether that is possibly in being in the mix for the Celtic job or a job elsewhere and I've, I've said this already on Twitter that like he eight league games wouldn't have been enough for him to be in the mix for the job I don't think um, or even a a good job elsewhere. But if he can do well in the Scottish Cup, if he wins the Scottish Cup, how many caretaker managers in their first few months, the first three months of being a manager, yeah. winning a major trophy in a country? That that is that would be huge. And especially if you go on to beat Rangers twice and beat them in the Scottish Cup as well, that's mm-hmm. that's showing potential to be a serious contender for Celtic manager. But yeah. I'm talking about him purely from a, his own perspective. And he'll be thinking, if I can do well in the Scottish Cup, if I can win the Scottish Cup, because I've got one of the best sides in the country here, yeah. even though they're not performing uh, performing to the, those levels, he should be thinking, I can get a premiership job in, in Scotland, if if I don't if I don't get the Celtic job or if I don't get in the mix of the Celtic job, I I can be getting a a, a Hibs or an Aberdeen. Aberdeen job's vacant now. Mm-hmm. If if it's still vacant by the time it comes to the Scottish Cup final and and John Kennedy potentially wins it, that he would surely he would be in the mix for that that kind of job. And, and yeah. he was linked with Hibs before, wasn't he, before Jack was, Ross? Yeah. So it shows you he's so well thought of in Scottish football. He's so well thought of at Celtic. And, I mean, Brendan Rodgers was desperate to bring him to Leicester. Desperate. Mm-hmm. Really wanted him. Was really disappointed that he, he didn't manage to bring him because he, he rates him so highly as a coach. Mm-hmm. And anytime you hear Damien Duff talk about him as well, just re- rates him so highly. Yeah. And um, so there's something there that the experts, the people who know football better than myself or, or any other pundit or or uh, journalist, there's definitely something there that people see 
every time they, they're with him. And he comes across well. He comes across very well. And I think that's a huge part of being a football manager. You've got to show that you've, if you've got an aura about you, if, you've, if you're confident in the way you're speaking, you've got to be able to, to um, communicate well. And if you can see that communication with the public, with the press, you know that communication is also there with the players. And I, I think that's really important as well as uh, for a football manager. And Kennedy seems to have that side. He seems to be highly rated as a coach. Let's see if he can do it as a manager. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a very important, you know, few weeks and months ahead for John Kennedy and whether his future is at Celtic or elsewhere. It's a real chance to prove that he can be the main man in his own right. We were very fortunate, Anthony. We were invited along to a, a, a fan media event on Friday of last week uh, by the club. So, I mean, myself uh, as part of the Celtic Exchange and various other uh, people in the Celtic media space that you'll know of, the Cynic, 20-minute Tims, uh, Celtic State of Mind, etc., and the club put on a you know fan media exclusive event where we got a chance to put questions to David Turnbull and to John Kennedy. And I don't know if you've heard any of the kind of recordings or feedback from it, but I thought John Kennedy was hugely impressive. I, I really do. And I, he's a guy who, every time I hear him speak, I get more and more impressed by him. Now, I'm not convinced he's the right man for the job at this time. He might be the right man at the wrong time for Celtic. I think he's a very impressive individual. And I think it's a real chance for him to now you know, take it a stage further than just speaking well about the game and actually bringing his ideas across. So whether he gets a chance to do that at Celtic or at Aberdeen or at Hibs, it will be interesting to look at moving forward. What I was also going to ask, just as we're starting to head to a close, Anthony, is in terms of fan media, so as I say, we had exclusive access to that event last Friday. How important a role do you feel that will play, um, you know, in football and Scottish football moving forward? Is it something, obviously you're, you're very close to the, the digital space on Twitter and otherwise, but what kind of role do you think, think that will play moving forward? I think fan media is now taking more of a prominent role. And I, th- I think it's it's fast becoming a very important part of media, football media, fan media. And I think it's really good that Celtic were able to put on a fan fan media access. And I know uh, the Cynic have, have been allowed at press conferences as well in the past. Mm-hmm. But um, no, it's, I think before, I think the mainstream media and football clubs saw fan media is just something that's quite irrelevant. Oh, look, they're trying to do our jobs or whatever. And uh, not me personally, but I think I think others genuinely did and uh, major organisations did as well. But I think they're slowly starting t- to see that fan media plays a really important role in terms of giving fans a voice, asking the questions that might not be asked by mainstream media due to various other other reasons um um legal contractual other things as well but uh they, they can ask things from a celtic viewpoint as well yeah and that that's really important and you've got there's some really good celtic fan media out there obviously this podcast the celtic state of mind the cynic they're all really good mm-hmm. celtic and powerful Celtic fan media yeah. and it's 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 really good to see the club are recognising it because especially in a time where the messaging and communication hasn't been at its best well certainly the fans have felt that way mm-hmm. and it's it's going to play a huge role I mean we use we use fan media and people who appear on podcasts to give reaction 
mm-hmm. on Celtic stories uh, on Sky Sports News, and yeah. that just shows it. And we do that for other clubs. We have like Flex, Man United, big Man United fan. We have mm-hmm. um, others in the media, uh, others in fan media or celebrity influencer fans, because that's the way things are going yeah. as well. They these people have a huge influence. They have a huge voice, and it's all about connecting with them and understanding that that this is this is a platform that you can have a bit of a rant but also look at things rationally and objectively and 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 have debate spark debate spark conversation and i think fan media does that so well and i've i, I listened to a lot of fan media podcasts yeah. because of it because if, when i'm driving home from work if it's like one in the morning or something if i've been on a late shift i, I listen to fan media podcast i listen to this podcast i listen to celtic state of mind i listen to the cynic because it just it just you just want that kind of relatability as well you don't yeah. want everything from an impartial balanced view if you know what i mean you you want to hear some on, real honest opinion on there and yeah. i think fan media gives you that platform yeah i think it definitely does and, it? and it's it, you know it's really interesting from my side to, to hear you know someone you know like yourself from Sky Sports to be to be making those comments, and I'm sure they'll be well received in the you know the Celtic fan media space. I also think it was a really interesting and welcome move by the club, you know, overall to to give us that access last week. Now, uh, cynics and the Celtic support will say, well, you know, they're rolling it out just ahead of season ticket campaigns, or here's the John Kennedy propaganda, you know, drive beginning and all that kind of stuff. I think, you know, I'm taking it at face value. You know, there's some, you know, very good and very genuine people at Celtic. And I think this has been done for all the right reasons. And I hope it's a, a sign of things to come. Now, you know, we wouldn't expect maybe to have weekly access in the same way that the the normal, uh, you know, press or media events would be. But, you know, even just semi-frequent contact with the club and the players and the management or whatever it might be, I think it would go a long way to helping bridge that gap between the club and the fans. Because, you know, unfortunately, that that relationship has been damaged this season. You know, there's been long spells of silence from Celtic towards the fans and they've, they've not addressed some very genuine concerns. And I think it has caused, uh, you know, real issues at times. And the only way you can start repairing this or any type of, you know, long-term damage is talk and communicate and start to, to build those bridges again. So hopefully ourselves and the, the various other uh, fan media sites start to get more of that access and we may start to see, you know, a shift in the landscape overall. Yeah, and just two points on that that you raised. The cynics talking about, or critics, mm-hmm. saying that, oh, the, the club are just doing that because they want to sell uh, season tickets or whatever. Even if that is the case, you would still take the access because yes, you, can then, you, can then, you can then take, you can then put your questions to the people who are, who are at the club. You can put yeah. your questions to John Kennedy about what's the coaching philosophy at, at Celtic, what kind of yeah. uh, training is done. And he spoke highly, of, he, he spoke in le- at length about his coaching philosophy. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a question you wouldn't really get at a news conference because you're only limited, like a lot of the time we're only limited to a certain amount of questions. So mm-hmm. if Sky Sports News is first, which they often are, it's, it's usually Sky or BBC are first at a press conference to ask yeah. the question you can't really that you can't open up so John Kennedy what is your footballing philosophy you can't open that you've got to open up with the news you want you you need a news line out of there so it's really good to 
get that kind of access. And you got Turnbull. I think Turnbull spoke really well about Brown's mm-hmm. influence yeah. and the legacy he'll leave um, for people like himself and uh, other younger players coming through in that position. And it's it's the kind of access and the kind of questions you want from Celtic fan media. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah it was good to see and it was it was really fascinating insight from yeah. the questions were asked were great and the answers you got back great questions bring in great answers and that's mm. that's uh, great credit to to everyone who was doing the press yeah who was doing the fan media day I agree and I think you know the, the questions from the, the various other Celtic sites were of high caliber and they are you know the the format allowed us to ask different questions so it wasn't you know, is Barcast fit? Where's James Forrest? What's happening here? What's happening there? Mm. It was more, as you mentioned, Anthony, about, you know, John Kennedy's coaching philosophy and his principles and what he believes in. So it was bigger picture stuff, mm. which made for some just really interesting, you know, stories in himself. And they just wouldn't have been possible. You wouldn't have been able to pull those stories from a an everyday Friday media event. So it was mm. something a wee bit different. And I think it worked well. And, and as I say, hopefully it's a, a sign of, better things to come between the club and the fan media moving forward. Um, just in terms of moving forward, and, and I'm conscious of, of the time as well, the the summer obviously um, should be a big one for Scottish football fans, given that Scotland have finally qualified for a major tournament, first time since 98. Will you be covering that as part of your role within Sky Sports? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, we'll be working this summer and the Euros is the big the big thing this summer. Yeah. We'll be doing the, the news side of it, obviously, but uh, with fans hopefully coming back. And we're not the host broadcaster for the Euros, obviously. It has to be on terrestrial TV and uh, state TV all over Europe and the world. But yeah, I mean, it is it is the big event of the summer and Sky Sports News will be covering it closely. I just, I'm, if... Fans are allowed back, and there's that game at Wembley, Scotland against England. Yeah. I will be taking it off. I mean, I think I'll probably try and take it off anyway. <laughs> if my boss is listening to this, he'll be like, "No, maybe you're not." <laughs> but uh, no, I'll, I'm hoping to be in a kilt at Wembley. I yeah. mean, I think it's more of a dream than a reality, but let's see. Yeah, I'd like to think a man of your calibre's got some uh, connections here and there and can maybe <laughs> wangle a press pass for Wembley for the big day. <laughs> well, I always say to my mates down here, uh, we, no matter what sport it is, no matter what level, we always find a new way to go out of something, <laughs> whether that's the Rugby World Cup where yeah. there was that harsh uh, decision with, um, against Australia, whether it's the women's... World Cup yeah. or, or Scotland going out somehow due to coronavirus of some sort. I don't know. It'll be, we'll find a way to go out of some way. Yeah, I think we do. We always find new ways to to break our hearts, you know, whether it be, yeah. you know, football or otherwise. And you never know, you know, there's obviously a huge, quite a sizable Celtic contingent uh, within the Scotland setup. And who knows, you know, guys like, you know, Griffiths and Christie and McGregor and Forrest are obviously close to it. And even Stephen Welsh that I mentioned might also be in the mix here somewhere. So I suppose there's an exciting time ahead in terms of the national team. And as you and I spoke about in depth, Anthony, obviously there's some huge decisions to be made and potentially some very exciting times ahead for Celtic as well. So lots to look forward to, fingers crossed. Anthony, all that's left uh, for me to do is thank you very much for your time. You've been very kind with your your time and your stories here today so thanks again for joining us here at the Celtic Exchange No thanks thanks for having me Tino it's been a really good chat thanks